Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, coding compliance plans. Um, Neil and Mark, how are you guys doing today? Doing great, Ross. Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the things from a from a coding compliance plan that we really want to dig into today um, is really the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and, and what are the things that that we're looking at from a from a compliance perspective as it relates to 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 coding and and you know backing it up a step you know everybody knows in compliance that one of the seven elements of a compliance program is auditing and monitoring and um, it's very important that that a company and a compliance program has a great auditing and monitoring program but it really starts with the company in and of itself uh, developing a compliance plan and how they're going to do some coding monitoring and auditing so uh, I think it's a good topic for us to, to dig into and and um, uh, essentially lots of different ways of determining what a compliance plan is right so overarchingly when a compliance program develops a compliance plan we talk about how you are going to audit and monitor those different types of billings so that you don't violate the false claims act um, so just kind of turning it over to you and uh, Neil and Mark uh, you know from a coding compliance plan when a compliance program develops their their audit process and how they're going to look at things Tell me the good, the bad, and the ugly. I, I think the first thing that uh, everybody probably should be aware of is, is as we look out at the environment, most people are trying to figure out, do I need a coding compliance plan? And I think up until um, last year, uh, there were recommendations, there was a lot of back and forth, but I think the clarity that the Department of Justice brought to their coding compliance uh, guideline letter last year in April uh, made it abundantly clear that this is no longer an option. It's it's not a recommendation. It's a requirement. And since uh, the Department of Justice is the organization that is giving guidance to CMS, which of course covers Medicare, Medicaid, and Champus, uh, and is the same guidance followed by the RAC auditors and Office of <coughs> Inspector General, um, people that are concerned about coding compliance clearly need to have a plan in place. And, and so um, I, I think it all starts with the understanding that if you thought it was optional, it's no longer optional. And so then all the elements we're gonna talk about today and the importance of it, I think are uh, critical um, to understanding that foundation. Um, I think you mentioned already as you as you start off to uh, create something, you want to make sure that you are laying out clearly what you're auditing, the sample size, as well as the service lines that may occur in your organization, and that uh, you want to uh, be able to set an accuracy standard level that would be uh, 
commensurate with what the federal government is expecting you to do. Hi, this is Mark. Um, uh, Ross, in keeping with your theme of the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, I think it's also important to state that the good of having a compliance plan means that you're actually not missing billable services. You're capturing everything to be billed. Uh, that can, and we've seen it over and over and over again in our audits, that, that doctors and practices uh, without question are leaving money on the table. And a compliance plan and the component of the compliance plan that reviews coding often turns up missed billable services, which is lost money. So that's the good. Of course, the bad is <laughs> is the other side, which uh, the purpose of a code and compliance plan is looking at whether or not you're doing things compliantly from a, um, a, a area of the law that's about to get you potentially into trouble for recoupments, either by Medicare or by third-party payers, because since most of the big players today are auditing uh, as well as Medicare and Champus and Medicaid. And so um, looking at things uh, that are going to be potentially recoupable is what a lot of organizations focus on. And I think that unfortunately, uh, leadership in those organizations tend to think of the, their compliance department and their auditing department um, in ways where they don't realize that Mark's comment about the good also exists there, where they can potentially find revenue in addition to finding vulnerability. Just expanding on, on the good and the bad before we get truly into the ugly, which I think is a lot of what we need to talk about, right? Um, so just expanding a little bit on some of the comments, uh, Neil, talking about the new DOJ guidance is very important um, because, you know, as, as companies are abiding by <clears throat> developing compliance programs, clearly they came from the U.S. federal sentencing guidelines from the 90s, as well as any type of uh, OIG promulgated guidance throughout the 90s and early 2000s into different areas of saying what is a compliance program what is a compliance plan how are you going to implement it you know the doj did exactly what you said right and they said you know we are going to make this operational we are going to to make this a compliance program a real thing not a check the box not a not a audit process that just says hey by the way just kind of do a few of them but you really don't have to mitigate any results from it. You really don't have to do anything, you know, status post error rates. It's just kind of is what it is. And if you do that, then you get credit under your compliance program. That's not what they're saying. They're saying it needs to be a living, breathing thing um, as a compliance program. And a big portion of that is a false claims act, especially in healthcare, right? One of the most highly regulated industries, um, you know, top five in the, in the, in the, world, um, you know, it's, it's really up there that, that this type of auditing and monitoring is really important, especially with the Department of Justice. Um, dovetailing a little bit into to your comments, Mark, um, Medicare and the OIG, it's, it's, it's about coding accuracy, right? It's not about upcoding, downcoding, it's about coding accuracy. So if you're actually out there determining which codes are correct, whether it's overcoding or undercoding, lost revenue or, or compliance exposure, that's really important from a good 
coding and auditing perspective, right? Um, unfortunately, when you ever get into an audit, you never get to return them. You never get to actually go back and ask for the extra money because they said, too bad, you know, too, <laughs> you missed it. Um, but uh, from the other side of it, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That, that is a, a good program to be able to look at your revenue cycle process and, and enhance it to make sure that you do have the accurate coding. Um, when you talk about good coding and monitoring, right? Why is it important to use different aspects, right? So when we talk about a compliance plan for coding and, and um, auditing and monitoring, you know, what is the good aspects of it? Should you, should you be looking internally? Should you be looking externally? Um, you know, where, where, where do you go to find the experts in the industry? Um, and I qualify that by saying I have a number of clients who have done it Lots of different ways, right? They go hire certified coders. They use outsourced companies. Um, they train individuals who are clinicians uh, to try to code uh, very specifically to their specialties. So when you're building those different compliance programs and those standards, you know how do you how do you get to that good realm of of, of the coding process? Uh, this is Mark uh, and. We think that the key to getting to accuracy is clinical specialization. And just as doctors specialize in whether it's neurosurgery or anesthesiology or radiology, we think that coders need to specialize. And um, uh, so it, it, it makes no sense to have a um, uh, an audit of an orthopedic practice done by a um, coder who has years and years and years of experience in cardiology. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So we, we believe the first step is, uh, is uh, this, this clinical specialization of the auditor doing the, the coding accuracy review. And um, unfortunately, the coding certification entities that are out there um, uh, do not place enough emphasis on this need to specialize. And although they have multiple specialty credentials, they're unfortunately not reflective of the, the, the fund of knowledge you need for uh, for that specialty, and in fact, we have um, forty five different clinical proficiency tests uh, that we ask our coders and auditors to take, and um, the failure rate is astronomically high, way over sixty percent in some specialties, even higher. Um, so you, you you have to. Uh, you have to be really, really proficient in a single specialty. Neil? Yeah, I, I think um, th that point about specialization can't be underlined enough. So if you create that in the organization itself, or you hire uh, a, an external uh, vendor, uh, looking for that is the key to getting good commentary back and I think a, a meaningful set of responses in the audit. I think uh, additionally, you know, Ross, you talked about people building in-house units. I think the problem that a lot of organizations struggle with internally is 
in some cases there's a, 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 a almost built-in bias because you end up in a situation and a lot of them depending upon how big they are or how fragmented they are where um, the auditing unit uh, either isn't as we've discussed as specialized as it should be just because there's not enough budget to go around or there's a situation where the screening process of the auditors uh, is inadequate. Uh, we've had compliance officers at organizations, large organizations, flunk our uh, specialty exams. It's just one example of how uh, the organization of the industry uh, fails itself all the time. And, and so I, I think that uh, it's not that we're uh, the only answer that out there. There's plenty that do know what they're doing. But I, I think you have to be very careful. And I think as you build these organizations, you also have to understand that from when a compliance audit organization within sometimes is auditing coders within that same organization, there is political directives that come into play. Like, uh, well, we found an enormous amount of problems with the coding accuracy from this coder. So then you're left with the next step of, okay, what happens? Well, that's, I think, the, probably the next piece of what we should help our people that are listening talk, uh, talk to, which is um, you get a result and then what does the organization do with that result, whether it's from external or internal? And um, the problem is a lot of organizations and their plans right now do not have certain elements that the DOJ guidance calls for in 2019, which is when you identify a problem to not only immediately remediate it, but then to prove that you have remediated it. Well, there's only one way to do that. That's to re-audit after the remediation period, whatever it is, teaching, training, whatever you're doing, um, you have to do that. And a lot of the programs that we see, you'll, you may not have a, a audit team go back in for a year. And, and a year is not <laughs> the federal government's time. They want you submitting potentially claims that have already been proven to potentially be uh, at risk, so. I mean, those are great points. And when we talk about compliance programs, compliance plans, and you know, coding compliance plans, um, the number one thing that 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 I've done in my career, and we do in our current um, company standpoint, is you know, look at the three uh, activities that a compliance program does: right, detect, prevent, and mitigate. Um, you just hit two of those three, right? Detection and mitigation. That's the number one thing that we should be looking at. Prevention's a little bit easier. That's education and training, as long as, as well as policies and procedures. But, but ov overarchingly, detection and mitigation is really, really important. Um, but if you talk about, if you want to back up a little bit, and you're saying, hey, by the way, I need to talk about my my coding compliance plan or my compliance plan overarchingly where it deals with auditing and monitoring. What are the expectations of the standards, right? So, so what are, you know, in your mind and, and how you look at it, what is a good acceptable standard of error, right? And, and there's a number of different ways that, <clears throat> that I believe you all get engaged to look at uh, coding, whether it's, 
coding up front before it gets paid out and that type of service for auditing monitoring monitoring standpoint. But when you're talking about the coding standards, what are you, what do you look for? What is your your threshold from that standpoint of saying how accurate should someone be? So uh, typically as you look around the industry for sure, the standard is somewhere between ninety and ninety-five percent. I, I I mean I've seen organizations set them higher than that, but clearly if you're falling below that, it'd be pretty hard to start to justify error rates over 10% to a federal program for sure. And I think that um, when we're talking about error rates, there's lots of different calculations I've seen. I've seen organizations give equal weight to a diagnostic code as they do to a CPT code. So I, I think that bears a moment of discussion. Um, a CPT code is always going to result on the professional side for some sort of major problem. You're either creating an underpayment, which is a compliance issue, or you're creating a recoupable issue. And one of those two issues is always going to end up making an organization unhappy in the long run. And so, I think that if you keep the focus that that is what is going to get you in trouble more often than not with third-party payers, then I think you start from a better position. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't diagnostic code-sensitive services you render, and I think you take that into account as well, and you try to have a measurement for that process separately in and of itself so you can evaluate the the value of the diagnostic codes in your particular specialty. And just to give an example, for instance, diagnostic radiology is extraordinarily sensitive to diagnoses, whereas some of the surgical operative specialties are not as uh, uh, sensitive to uh, scrutiny under ACE at the level of specificity that you're submitting your claim in. Good compliance always calls for accuracy so you always want to be looking at that to make your improvements, but I don't think you give it the exact same weight as something that could get you in trouble with a third-party payer. So that's the philosophy that I think, if you think about that, you're going to be in a lot better shape. Until value-based reimbursement comes around, right? Exactly. Again, <laughs> you, have, you have to look at you know, the market as it is today, you have to look at what third parties are looking at and the vast majority of, you look at the physician recruitment, physician recruitment primarily is done uh, today based upon incorrect CPT codes, uh, followed occasionally by misuse of modifiers and a couple of things where you see people fraudulently using diagnoses that were never uh, meant to be applied to that particular encounter um, just to get payment. So, um, but again, if you look at what gets most people in trouble, it's the CPT codes. Guilty as charged, by the way. And uh, <laughs> I, I tend to uh, disregard any and all ICD-10 codes that I see on my audits just because they don't drive a reimbursement for the CPT and E&M levels of service. So totally, totally agree with that 100%, but they do have a, a place in our industry, right? They do, they do, and you know, I've had this philosophical discussion with compliance officers, with uh, outside auditing companies that give the same weight to an ICD-10 code as they do to a CPT code, 
and you know you sit there and you're going well i don't know how you're doing that because uh the accuracy of the cpt codes on this practice is 95 percent and the accuracy of the uh, diagnostic codes is 85 and you're basically uh flunking the coder because they didn't uh didn't hit the 90 percent accuracy overall because you, you you gave the same weight to a diagnostic code Oh, that's great. I mean, that's a great analysis of that. Um, good question. 95 or 97 guidelines? We've always allowed our clients to um, utilize whichever guidelines they want to and that we've then given them the pros and cons of whichever guideline they end up selecting. And so from that standpoint, um, you know, while we do give guidance, um, usually our clients have already made the determination. Um, you know, we try to look at our clients' policies, and so we code to the policies they're trying to adhere to. As long as our clients are not breaking the law in their policies, then we follow those and we get those documented before we start an audit. And that's an interesting point. Um, I've seen external auditors come in, try to apply their own standards, and without verifying with the client what they're doing. And uh, that makes a total mismatch. And of course that usually leaves the uh, healthcare client uh, very unhappy with the results once they get them because they're left saying, this is interesting, but it has nothing to do with what we're doing and what we're trying to find out. So I, I think the closer you can get to what a client is doing, first do that as a baseline audit, then swing around and go, um, you know, you may want to consider for future that if you use 95 guidelines, you'd see this improvement. <clears throat> when you talk about the standards and, um, you know, we talk about 95 or 97 guidelines, whatever those are, right, Medicare standards, whatever the company decides to use, um, you know, what about pair-specific standards and, and coding guidelines? Um, and, and talk a little bit about that as being part of the, the coding compliance review. And, and I'll tell you why I'm asking. Um, in my experience, I've seen a number of individuals who may, may or may not fully understand coding compliance and, and the billing process who believe that Medicare guidelines and standards should be applied across the board for all payers, right? And we know that that they're more stringent. Um, there's a lot of numbering and you know counting and, and certain criteria that 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 require um, to meet certain EM levels of service. What do you guys? How do you guys uh, talk through with your clients about building their standards and whether or not they should focus on payer specific guidelines or not? Well, I always think it's a mistake when clients don't follow payer specific guidelines. However, when we approach an audit, again, we use what the clients determine to be their policies and then try to have that conversation afterwards and try to show them where they lose revenue oftentimes. I think the misunderstanding, as you point out, that a lot of people in compliance have is that it's the gold standard. And while it's a standard, if you follow that to its logical conclusion across the board, uh, what you haven't taken into account is the federal government uses a budgetary tool to set CMS guidelines every year 
and that tool is what causes so much unbundling I mean, so, so much greater bundling of codes on the governmental side than it does in the private carrier world and while certain private carriers will follow some of those guidelines just to reduce the payments that they have um, again if you code pair class specifically and audit pair class specifically you'll certainly see the fruits of uh, following AMA guidelines on non-governmental payers. So just to wrap that up, when we talk about standards, um, what I'm hearing is make sure you have them, make sure they're documented, make sure that you you know how to apply them, whether <laughs> whether they're Medicare guidelines, whether they're payer-specific guidelines, just make sure that you understand what they are and they comply with, with the rules and regulations. Um, and that's step one, you know, probably in the coding compliance uh, plan, right? Right, and, and again, I think that uh, if you have a good um, compliance department or external vendor, they'll bring other issues to the table that you want to have as policy issues uh, in your your platform. Especially today, so many groups are now owned by health integrated healthcare systems, and so there's a lot to uh, consider specialty by specialty. We actually in our world. Uh, create these policy profiles by specialty, even when we go into an integrated healthcare system, because there's lots of issues to consider specialty by specialty. What about, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about overarching auditing and monitoring by the compliance program, which, um, you know, from my standpoint, it's it's a bigger perspective of, of how you actually look at the auditing and monitoring umbrella, right? And um, what about internal QA, right? I, I think that there's a, a process within a company that they need to have that internal QA that's constantly providing that feedback. Um, what's your, what's your, yeah. what's your thoughts on internal? Certainly a big fan of uh, having internal QA and even having internal compliance. I'm, all I'm suggesting is that an organization um, to make sure that their team isn't missing something because again all teams have a limited budget and you want to make sure that uh, you're not missing something because of the limitations of your staff and so doing QA is just part of doing good coding you can't just let a coder go and unfortunately uh, most health systems most medical groups don't have skills tests and by skills tests I mean actual specifics about a particular specialty that they're asking coder to code. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that Mark mentioned before, when we have these skills tests that we administer to somebody that we want to bring on board, there's such an enormous failure rate is because people aren't doing that. And when they bring people on board, they'll say, somebody's a certified coder and I'm sticking them in the slot and I've sticked them in this slot and I didn't validate whether they knew vascular surgery or not. And so if you're not doing QA after they, after you've done that, uh, then you're really uh, going to have a lot of dysfunction. And uh, oftentimes the organizations get surprised when we come in and we do the level of audit that we do and see that they had no idea because they weren't doing enough QA. And so QA, as you said, is the first step to try to ferret some of that out. Guys, uh, our esteemed producer just told me that we are running out of time. 
and he'd like us to uh, summarize this uh, and, and uh, prepare for the next uh, podcast. And he reminded me to offer uh, any li listener that the Coding Network will uh, give at no charge a 10 case free audit for per practice, not per doctor, but per practice. Um, but anyhow, uh, your your closing comments. Um, I would I would ask you a question, Mark. And yeah. we didn't hit the ugly, you know. And that that is the one thing, you know, having a compliance plan and not abiding by it. What as we wrap it up, what's the ugly part of of kind of what we talked about and not having it or or not producing it? What's what's the ugly? Well, the ugly part is um, the medical police. Um, these got the OIG and the SIUs, which are the special investigative units of the uh, state's Medicaid units, and they've recently been given additional funding, all have, uh, uh, they're all on, a, uh, on the warpath. And it's an eat what you kill type of warpath where the more errors they find, the more money they recoup, the more staff they are able to build. So that's the ugly. And again, keeping with your theme, Ross, of the good, the bad, and the ugly, we are going to, in our next podcast, talk about how to divide your own doctors and coders up into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So uh, I want to thank all of the listeners uh, who have attended this. Um, uh, you can uh, reach Ross at Ross, your, your website is? It's uh, Ronan, R-O-N-A-N-H-C dot com. And, uh, of course, the Coding Network is uh, uh, codingnetwork.com. Uh, Neil, closing remark? No, uh, I look forward to our next podcast, and uh, hopefully uh, everybody has found this to be of value. Thank you so very much. listening to the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, sponsored by Ronin Healthcare Consultants and the Coding Network, with our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.